I want to talk to you this morning about the gospel and good works. As Christians, we tend to emphasize one over the other. There are those who stress that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved by grace. Therefore, we shouldn't be overly concerned with good works. How we live doesn't matter. What matters is our grace, faith in the grace of God. Then there are those on the other end of the spectrum. Those whose sole focus is on good works. Works of charity, love, generosity. These are motivated by genuine concerns for the poor and needy. A genuine concern for the work that God wants to do among the widows and the orphans. The problem with that group is that they tend to make salvation more about works than about anything else. So their confidence is in their good works rather than in the finished work of Christ. The New Testament church dealt with this question all the time. Since the gospel is by grace alone and not by works, any right thinker, anyone who has a mind and thinks for a moment, will come to a conclusion like Paul faced when he heard the reports from the church in Rome. If we're saved by grace, shouldn't we just sin all the more? Paul responds by saying, by no means we should not sin the more. But in Paul's response to the church in Rome, he he says, well, I want to pause you for a moment there and say, you've actually got it right. In other words, you understand clearly that we are saved by grace alone and not by works. So it, it is natural to think then that if we're saved by grace, then it doesn't matter how we live. Well, of course, Paul would go on to argue in the book of Romans that if you're saved by grace, you have a new love new desire, and you, you want to do good works, and you want to be holy. Well, here in Titus, which is where we're at this morning, Paul writes perhaps one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible about salvation by grace alone and not by works. Uh, Paul hopes really, I think, to write to both those groups I identified. Those that live on the extremes of grace alone, Anti-law, antinomian, no law, full Christian liberty, I can do whatever I want. And the other end of the spectrum, the Pharisee, the one who, who looks down on the sinner. Man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And he speaks to both of us this morning. I think in us, we at times can be either one. Anti-law or anti-grace. And so this morning you may be at one end, but, but Paul has a word for all of us. And he writes to clarify to these groups, these, these polar opposites, and bring them back to the center of the gospel. Centering their lives, reordering, recalibrating them, if you will. That the gospel is to remain central 
to the life of God's people. Now you'd be reminded that Paul has sent his partner in ministry, Titus. Titus and him were very close. Titus was a, a bulldog of a leader. He could clean up when there was a mess. Unlike timid Timmy, right, who had some issues, uh, he, he, he seems to get afraid of false teachers in Ephesus. But Titus is the strong leader, and Paul sends him down to Crete to clean up the churches. Paul, of course, had been in Crete sharing the gospel, evangelizing, and these new Christians needed to be gathered into local churches. And so he sends Titus down there and says, all right, we've got a bunch of new Christians that need to be gathered together into churches, and they need the right kind of leaders. They don't need the leaders that the Cretans will will affirm, but they need godly leaders. And so Titus's responsibility was to organize the church. And so the principle we saw there was that churches are to be organized. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that all things are to be done orderly, decently, right? This is why we have order in the church. Why we don't just have a free-for-all, right? As fun as that may sound to some of you this morning. Uh, Rather, the church is to be organized. And so Paul sent Titus to organize the churches and also to appoint godly leaders. Uh, Godly leaders, as we saw in chapter 1, lead in godliness, They model godliness to the congregation. In other words, if a congregation is ungodly, it is most likely because their leader or leaders are ungodly. We saw in in the first chapter that God has appointed a plurality of men to lead the local church. Men who are called, equipped, gifted by God to lead God's people. This is God's design, not man's. And so the church should be ordered after God's design. He has made clear instructions to us. And then last week, we considered in chapter 2 how God has called, equipped elders to teach about godliness. They are to teach for godliness. Not only be godly and lead in godliness, but also teach God's people what it means. They are to instruct the congregation in sound or healthy doctrine. Now, this last chapter sort of ties everything together and lays before us the underpinning for the whole book. It it lays out the, the foundation of why all of this is made possible, why all of this could happen. He introduced the letter with this. It's a short letter, but he started the letter with it and he concludes the letter with the gospel. And so I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. And keep it open so you know what I'm talking about. Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, as Paul wraps up his letter, he makes this point saliently clear. As Christians, God has saved us by grace for the purpose of godliness. God has saved us by grace for the purpose of good works. You'll see throughout that last chapter, the word good works repeated over and over and over again. You are saved, redeemed for godliness. Good works are, are acts of godliness. They are a reflection of God's character. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to remind ourselves as Christians that we have been saved for godliness. This is why God saved us. To make us holy. That we might be in a right relationship with Him. Well, as you think about this, a question comes to mind. How does the Gospel change us? And I want us to look this morning at, at really some new loves that God has in our hearts. As God changes us, we love new things. We have a desire for new things. We have a craving for new things. Uh, we get a new heart, which implies uh, new desires, new favorites. And Paul's point here in, in Titus 3 is that we get new love. We see first a new love for all people. We once hated people, now we love people. We once lived our days hating one another, now we can't stop loving one another. We see also that we get a new, the gospel gives us a love for good works. And that's the sort of overarching theme, but that's Paul's point there in verses 3 through 8. We see also that the gospel gives us a love for a pure church. In other words, the gospel gives us a love that clarifies who's in and who's out. The gospel is exclusive. It's only for those who repent and trust in Christ. And lastly, we'll see in verses 12 through 15 that the gospel gives us a love for missions. It gives us a love to seeing sinners saved through the work of missionaries. Well, first, in verses 1 through 2, we see that the gospel 
gives us a love for all people. Paul tells Titus, I need you to remind them to be submissive. I need you to remind them, Titus. In other words, Paul's point is this. The work of the elders is a work of reminding. What Paul is writing and what they're hearing through this letter is nothing new. They're not sitting in the pews saying, wow, I did not know that I was supposed to be obedient. I didn't know that I was supposed to be submissive to the emperor. I didn't know that I was supposed to not speak evil. Now, see, Paul had made all of this very clear to them when he shared the gospel with them. When God had first or when Paul had first evangelized them and began to disciple them and shepherd them. The point I want you to see is one of the responsibilities of the elders is to be on repeat. You ever uh, have a song play over and over and over in your head? Kind of annoying. It gets it kind of gets you after a while. It's like, all right, it's enough of that song. Uh, But that's the work of an elder. The work of an elder is to say the same old things, the same old ways until it drills into your head. Until you remember and are reminded of the truth of the gospel. Saying the same things is the work of an elder. So if you ever get tired of me saying the same things, I'm just obeying the Bible. For the scripture says that we are to remind. The life of the Christian is, is, a, is a daily reminder. This is why it's not a once for all kind of deal. You know, you hear the gospel and you're done with it. You put it away. No, no, the gospel is a daily reminder. Daily, I need to wake up and look at the mirror and say, I'm a sinner dead in my trespasses and sins unless God intervened and saved me. Every day I need to be reminded that I need grace, that I live by grace alone in Christ alone. Every day we need to be reminded of these sweet truths of the gospel. And so Paul says, remind them. Remind them to love all people. See, the gospel changes our hearts. It transforms what we love. We go from people who hate people, self-centered and selfish, to to people who love others and love all people. The point that Paul is making here in the text, you'll see it in verse 2, that you're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In other words, the gospel changes our relationships with others. In chapter 2, it was about our character. It was about our relationships at home. About our relationships in the church. But see, the Gospel isn't just for Sundays. The Gospel is for every day. The Gospel is for the workplace. The Gospel is for the, uh, the, when you're driving down the street and, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to obey the speed limit or not. Uh, The gospel is for when you don't like who the president of the United States is because the way he talks or the, the things he says. The gospel is for when you can't stand who the next speaker of the house will be because you don't like her politics. The gospel is for whenever you are frustrated when it seems that injustice continues in the police department here in Baltimore. The gospel is for all of life, not just for Sundays. And we see here in the text how the gospel affects our relationships with those in the world. In other words, the exhortation to love is not an exhortation to love people who are lovable. Well, that's what we have to do, right? That's the hallmark love, right? 
I will love you because I know you'll love me. Right? You ever, you ever get annoyed when someone sends you a, a birthday card? Maybe a little gift, right? What do you do? Man, now I got to give them something, right? <laughs> no, that's the, that is not the point of a gift. A gift is given without strings attached, without getting something in return. And when we love, we're to love all people indiscriminately of who they are, irregardless if they are lovable or not. Well, notice what he says here. See, seven characteristics of a, of a gospel people in the world. And, I'll, and again, I don't want to spend a, a ton of time with them. You can you know, read more about these. But we see seven here in this list. And, and I know you good Pharisees in this room will, will love these lists. Um, so look at them. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, now I want to make a very clear and, and statement here about exhortations to submit to rulers and authorities. You'll find them throughout the New Testament. You'll find them, you know, think of Daniel, for example, right? Someone who submitted uh, even to a, a wicked king. Uh, but the, the point that the Bible is making is you're submitting when and only when those in authority over you are for your good and not for evil. In other words, if the government is coercing you to sin, then it's okay to rebel, all right? The point here that... that Paul makes here and elsewhere is that when they are for your good. But that does not neglect the fact that Paul's writing this in a context in which the government of the day was the Roman Empire. Filled with corrupt leaders, wicked men. But yet they had a duty to submit. To follow the laws of the land, to not be rebels. We see secondly there to be obedient I believe this implies not only at the, in the home, but, but clearly at work and in the workplace to be obedient, not unruly. Imagine what that would do to the testimony of the church if its members spent the week unruly in the neighborhood, breaking laws. Ready, he says, for every good work. In other, in other words, your engines are, are, are on, they're ready to go. You are looking for every opportunity to do good. Every opportunity to you wake up in the morning saying, how how can I do good today? How can I display God's glory today? Speaking evil of no one. Now, you don't need to to have a a mastery of the Greek language. Uh, What he means there is no one. Nobody. How are you tended to speak evil of a no one? You see, we tend to justify it. We tend to make excuses. You don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand who they are. Paul makes pretty clear, no one. We're to speak evil of no one. I think especially he has in mind outsiders, non-Christians. Brothers and sisters, how often are we quick to speak evil of evil? Now, Paul isn't saying calling evil evil, okay? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying speaking evil about someone. Is your hope for the terrorists just to tear them down? To be like them? Or is it for you to see them come to faith in Christ? That's why we're thankful for our partners in in Iraq who 
50 miles away, ISIS is is camped out, ready to, to deploy their evil. But yet God is at work saving sinners. In Satan's backyard, God is still on the throne. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. You would think church people don't read this. How often do we get into arguments and quarrel about nonsense? In the midst of our divided nation, in the midst of of this political chaos that we're in, how often do you just want to get out and have a good fight rather than stop and listen to what someone is actually saying to you? As Christians, we need to stop talking and listen more. And I'm going to pick on my Republican brothers and sisters here for a moment. You need to stop and think for a minute why someone can be a follower of Jesus Christ and vote for a Democrat. You need to stop just putting them in a category and start thinking for a moment how it might be possible. Try to understand why that would be. And for my Democrat brothers and sisters, the opposite is true for you. We need to stop and listen to not just look for fights. This is why he goes on to say that we must be gentle, gentle people, people known for their gentleness to one another and even those that aren't like them. And finally, he concludes by saying, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. And again, I just want to stress it, right? Look at your Bible. Look with me in verse two. He says, showing perfect courtesy toward everyone who's nice to you, everyone who looks like you, everyone who votes like you, everyone who thinks like you, everyone who has the same level of education as you, the same amount of money as you. No, no, no. He says all people. And it means all people. It means every person. And here's the theological reason. Because they're created in the image of God. That means they represent God just as much as you do. And if you speak evil of them, you're speaking evil about God who created them in his image. The gospel transforms our love for those in the world. We, we're not, no longer hate the world. We love the world because Jesus came to die. Last I'm a read John 316 for the world. Not just for us cleaned up Christians in the church. The gospel transforms our love for those in the world. And as our Lord reminds us, it is our love, not merely for one another, but for all people that marks us as true believers and followers of Christ. The gospel gives us a new love for one another and for others. And we see here in verses three through eight that the gospel gives us a love for good works. Now, let's meditate here for a moment. Let's 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 camp out here. Look here at verse 3. We get some bad news, don't we? Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? It's good news for us this morning. This is who we were, he says. That's who we once were. We were fools. Foolish disobedient right now we're obedient we were once disobedient what paul is doing here in verse 3 is contrasting if your bible's open just pan your eyes to the left to verse 16 of chapter 1 
should be kind of close to it. Here he writes about the, the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, he says they're not Christians. Because this is what a, a lost person acts like. This is who a, a sinner is. This is who an unregenerate man is. He is one who is disobedient. You know what's so funny here? I want to pinpoint something he says. He says, you are slaves to various passions and pleasures. You know what's so funny how often we would talk about free will? Friends, you weren't very free in your will. You were a slave. Last time I checked, that means you didn't get to do what you wanted to do. Your flesh ruled your, your life. Passing our days. We just kind of, you know, we, we busied ourselves. We, our calendars were, were planned out to say, today, I'm going to spend my day in malice and envy and hating as many people as I can. Now, again, I know you may not have been as evil as you, as this text maybe is saying, but, but this was true. This is true of you. This is true of me. We were once sinners. This is what we heard Sean read from Ephesians 2. Paul writes there, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who you were. This is who, who you are apart from Christ. Evil, hateful, vengeful. And this is the point Paul is making why are you acting like you once were? Stop acting like that. That's not you anymore. You've been saved. Something has happened. You've been transformed. You've been, trans, you've been shaped by another. And this is where the good news comes. So, so you're a sinner this morning. The Bible's clear. Then comes the good news. Verse 4, right? The, the great conjunction of but. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In your Bible, you'll see that's one long sentence. This is a, this verse, these verses is our conversion. How we were converted from sinner to saint. How we were transformed from, from a rebel, from one who hated to one who loves. You'll see here first in verse 4 that, that this transformation happened when God showed up. I don't have much time to spend on this passage, but I do want to point out the triune nature of this text. Titus, perhaps any other letter in the New Testament, has the most clear, I think, argument for Jesus' divinity. What that means is that Jesus is God. As we read at the beginning of our service this morning, in, articulated in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Or as R.C. would say, truly man or truly God and truly man. Verse 4 here, he says that God our Savior. And then later in verse 6, he says Jesus our Savior. Well, which is it, Paul? Is God our Savior? And anytime Paul, is, or Paul uses God, he's referring to the Father. 
God the Father. Which is it? God the Father or God the Son? Well, it's both. And the Holy Spirit is at work there too. In this text, you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working in triune way to save sinners. He appeared. Referencing His first appearance. Uh, Paul referenced that back in verse 11. For, but for the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. That's what we're going to celebrate in the month of December. The coming of Christ, right? That Christ came. He showed up. God drew near to sinful men. Now you think about this, this list of sins. Why does God want to be with people who are foolish, disobedient, who hate, filled with malice and envy? What? No, God drew near to us and saved us. Uh, the, the main point here in, is, comes in verse 5. He saved us. In other words, God saved us. Well, how did God save us? How did this happen? Well, Paul makes clear that it's not by our own merit. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And we certainly can't buy it. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, not because we did some good works. Not because we cleaned our life up. Not because we stopped some bad habits. Not because we come to church. Not because we read our Bible. Not because we pray. Not because we were baptized. Not because we take the Lord's Supper. But because, he says, by the standard of, according to His own mercy. In other words, the basis of our salvation in Christ is by God's mercy and by His mercy alone. That's why we can sing confidently, our sins they may be many, but His mercy is more. Mercy triumphs any sin. It triumphs over every sin we have because His mercy is more. So the merit is by the merit of God's own mercy and not our own merit. And so this morning, if you think you're special because you've been saved, you're wrong. Paul just says that. There was nothing about you. No rhyme or reason to it other than God has eternally elected you from the foundation of the world. That's the only reason. It's by His own mercy and His own mercy alone. We see also here the the manner of our salvation or the means of our salvation, how our salvation came about. How is it that we were changed? Well, he tells us right here in verse five, by the means of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you were born again. Now, some have taken this to believe Paul is referring to baptism here and wrongly taught that baptism regenerates you, that baptism saves you. But we as good Baptists uh, reject that view and believe the Bible here teaches that baptism is an outward sign of what the Spirit has done inwardly. That through the preaching of the Gospel, God takes the Word of God, Spirit of God, creates new life where there is death. Remember Paul, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. I'm pretty sure he means you were dead spiritually. 
And dead people, last I checked, can't come up out of the grave. When you're dead, you're dead. So you have to have some agent acting upon you in order to to bring life. And that agent is the Spirit of God accompanying the Word of God to breathe life into the people of God. So it's the Spirit work. Not some preacher's fine sermon. Not some conviction you felt. No, the Spirit was at work in you. Using those words of the preacher to bring life where there is death. And every Lord's Day, that's what happens in this place. Spiritually dead come alive through the Spirit and through the Spirit alone. You are regenerated. And also, you see in the text, you are renewed. You ever pause and, and consider how many songs we sing that focuses on our regeneration and how we often miss that second part, how we are also renewed. We'll sing here in just a moment, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. The conclusion of that song is that I am saved, hallelujah, but I am also made holy. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be made righteous. And the gospel brings both. So the manner of our salvation brings about new life in us, a new love. And notice in verse 6, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, the gospel, or salvation comes through the cross of Christ, through the work of Christ. Not only His death, but His perfect life. So that every time you read in the Scriptures that Jesus obeyed the Father, that every time you read in the Scriptures Jesus gets up early in the morning and goes out to a distant mountain and prays, every time you see Jesus obeying His Father, that's been credited to your account. So you don't need to be ashamed when you sleep through your alarm clock and you miss your devotional. You don't need to... Be discouraged when your prayer life doesn't seem to be as as fiery as you, you think it should be. Because see, God's view of you isn't your fiery prayer life or your lackluster Bible reading. But it's Jesus' perfect and holy life. Our righteousness is not our own. That's what we sang in I Will Glory in My Redeemer. Uh, we have been imputed righteousness. We've been given someone else's righteousness, someone else's good works. So we want to be clear here this morning that the gospel gives us a love for good works. The gospel, we're not saved by good works. Verse 7, so that being justified, here it is, by His grace. You see the purpose of our salvation. We've been justified. We've been declared not guilty from the tribunal of the throne room of God. You have been declared not guilty. And here's what's amazing about God in his declare in his decrees. He never comes back. Once you're justified, you can't become unjustified. Once you're declared holy, you don't become unholy. It's by his grace in his grace alone. I remember a preacher sharing this story once about his wife and kids. This preacher uh, pastored and the 
in the backwoods of uh, Kentucky. And uh, he was a young pastor and his wife uh, was at home with the kids, young kids. And, and they had two boys and they were very unruly boys. They were like most boys. They roughhoused and were rowdy in the home. And, and his wife had enough. She was fed up with it. She'd get the boys in the car. At this point, they know that, that mom means business, right? Mom begins to drive towards the church. Now they know they're in big trouble. Mom's not saying a word. They can see her blank face in the rearview mirror as they quietly wind through the back roads, passing the church on their way. What is mom going to do to us? <laughs> is she going to take us out to the woods and leave us for dead? What, what's going to happen to us? And, and as they make their way to the city, they pull up into a parking lot and they park the car. And their mom looks at them and says, what you deserve is punishment for your disobedience but I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to have mercy on you. And what I'm going to do is not only have mercy on you, we're going to go into Chuck E. Cheese and I'm going to let you just uh, have a ball of a time. And, and that's grace. You see, mercy is unmerited favor. when God sh- uh, Mercy is when God forgives our sins. Grace is unmerited favor. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to receive what you receive here in verse 7. Look at it again. So that justified by His grace, you might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Gospel gives you a new home. And you, get, you, you become an heir. Now I want you to think for just a moment about this Gospel. You were disobedient Hateful, malice, you hated God. And what does he do? He saves you and brings you into his home, all dirty and filthy. And he cleans you up and he sits you at his table and he says, everything is is yours. You can have it all. I share it all with you. See, brothers and sisters, that's the motive for good works. That's the motive for good works. That's what Paul says then in verse 8. The motive for good works is that we are heirs of eternal life. We get the universe with Jesus. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. What I just said is good and you should pay attention to what he said. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, what leads to good works in your life? Is it more effort? What leads to good works in your life? Is it you hunkering down and pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps? What gets good works going on in your life is you meditating on those sweet truths we just meditated on. Because when you understand who you are, That transforms how you live. You represent King Jesus in this world. And so do I. That's our motive. We're sons and daughters of the Most High. We will inherit the 
the eternal kingdom. Eternal life is ours. Why are we piddling around in the, in the filth of this world? Why do we care so much about this world when we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ? To summarize, Paul's point here to the elders, I think, is, is simply preach the gospel and don't stop preaching the gospel. Because the gospel gives you a love for good works. They are to persist in gospel preaching. They are to insist on the gospel. The gospel is the only remedy in the church. Well, finally, the last two points very quickly. The gospel, verses 9 through 11, gives you a love for a pure church. The gospel clarifies who are sheep and who are goats. You see, if we are to be known by our good works, the fruit of our lives, then naturally we will know those who don't have good fruits. And the fruits, these bad fruits that Paul identifies here, are there in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He's paralleling what he said there in verse 8. What's excellent and profitable for people? The gospel that leads to good works. What shouldn't you be doing? Arguing about foolish things. How many of faith was weakened by the foolish controversies of the end times? Is it pre, post, mid? I don't know. Jesus is coming again. I do know that. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Calvinist. I'm this. I'm that. Unprofitable and worthless. As God's people, we are to avoid divisive people. That's the point. And if the divisive one is unwilling to repent, look at the radical surgery that takes place in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him, and I'll insert her, once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Pure church. A love for a pure church. Not, not a perfect church. I'll be clear. Not a perfect church. A pure church. What that means is, is that who we say we are, we actually are. And those who claim to be followers of Christ and who aren't, will we make very clear for their soul's sake that they're not followers of Christ. And it's motivated by love. In Matthew 18, Jesus gave the instructions to the church, not to the elders, but to the church, that the church is to remove unrepentant sinners. Now, it doesn't mean remove them from their gathering on the Lord's Day. No, they need to hear the gospel. What that means is practically in their membership that they remove unrepentant sinners. 
Because all true Christians are repentant. Right? That's why he says after warning him once and then twice. In other words, they have persistently tried to get him to turn from his sins and to say, stop being divisive. You see, division, divisiveness is a cancer in the church. Amen. And you know where it starts? What that preacher's doing up there? Yeah, he's preaching the gospel. See, it starts with just a little bit. Oh, he moved that plant on me. Oh, they changed the color. Oh, it's not warm in here anymore. Oh, they're singing those contemporary songs. Oh, it's just not my church anymore. And like a vicious, infectious disease, It works its way through the congregation. And before long, we ain't worried about paint colors and carpet color. We're worried about whether or not we even believe this guy or are going to follow him. Division in the church will destroy it. This is why we want to pray for unity. We'll have disagreements. But we want to have unity. We don't want to be divided, but united. Because we're all bought by the same blood of Christ. The gospel clarifies who is in and who is out. The gospel is exclusive. It's only for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone. It's not for the goats. For those who are unwilling to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus. And as Christians, as members of Catonsville Baptist Church, you, not only me, have the responsibility to keep the church pure. To call a brother out or sister out when they're in unrepentant sin. Then I mean we're running around here checking up on everybody, you know, spying on everybody. <gasps> no, what it means is that we have such a relationship with one another that when a sister or brother is tempted to gossip, no. You got a problem? You need to go talk to them. Don't talk to me about your problem. We, we need to be bold in standing up against immorality, whether it be sexual in nature, cohabitation, all of the sins of the world that creep into the church and become acceptable. We need to be willing to stand up against them and to call sinners to repentance. We're not talking about kicking people out of churches. What we're calling it is we're saying, listen, here's the gospel is good. Come and and eat and feast of it. And you too can be an heir of eternal life. The gospel gives us a love for a pure church. And we see here in verses 12 through 15, the gospel gives us a love for global missions. You ever wondered why we do missions? Well, here's a great text right here. 
Paul gives the seeming instructions. We're like, oh, these people are dead. Uh, they're not around anymore. What's it matter? Let's just skip over that. Oh, no, we get to see a glimpse into the New Testament church. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, in other words, he's not sure which one he's going to send. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided the same spin the winter there. In other words, he's telling Titus, hey, when your relief comes, when your backup comes, I want you to come to me. Why? So he can pour into his life, so he can build them up. That was Paul's practice. What he would do is he would, he would go back to the churches that he started and to encourage them and build them up. He was constantly raising up and sending out pastors. Shows us the work that we should be doing as a church. Raising up men, sending them out, bringing them back, sending them back, back and forth, back and forth. We see also here in verse 13 and 14, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Of course, Zenos is unmentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Apollos is Apollos, the, the famous preacher uh, from 1 Corinthians. But I want you to see what they are to do there in verse 13. See that they lack nothing. In other words, help support their missionary work. See that they lack nothing. See that they have everything they need for their journey. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul, love it, gives a final application of all that he's been arguing about how Christians are to pursue good works. And he says, hey, I'll give you a freebie here. I'm going to send two guys your way and I want you to support them as a way to learn how to be people of good works. One of the most fundamental and basic ways we as individuals and as a congregation can be doing and pursuing and persisting in good works is by supporting global missions. By supporting missionaries, whether they be local missionaries, church planners here in North America, or supporting church planning going on around the globe. It's one of the basic ways that we learn to devote ourselves to good to good works. The gospel shapes us. It shapes and transforms how we spend our money. Rather than spending it on ourselves, as self-centered and selfish, we leverage what resources God has given us as a congregation, and we don't keep it to make our building look pretty. The Roman Catholic Church has a lot of pretty buildings. They don't have a pretty gospel. They don't have a gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have the gospel. We may have an old tattered building. At least it has lights and heat and seats. It may not be the most comfortable seats. But what, what does Jesus want from us? Does he want a perfect building? Does he care about buildings? No. He cares about people. All people. And as a pastor and shepherd, I just can't stand to imagine a day where I'm going to answer to Jesus and say, yo, Jesus, we have a ton of money in the bank. Boy, our building looks attractive to the world. But we can't for the life of us, spend a penny on someone else. 
Let that not be said about us. But let us in more practical ways demonstrate the gospel in our lives by giving money for global missions. Personally and corporately, let us start giving to starting new works like Joel in Montreal. Working down in the hood today where someone probably died the night before outside, but yet stayed persistently now for 10 years. Given to good work going on. Seeing sinners turn and coming to faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you've been saved for good works. God has called elders to lead in godliness and not just one, but a plurality of elders. To lead in godliness and to teach for godliness. Because you've been saved for godliness. You've been redeemed for good works. And this new gospel, this new love, this new life has given you a new love for all people. Not just your favorite people. A love for good works. A love for a pure church. And a love for global missions. And let that be our love today. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray today that you would seal us in your spirit. Teach us to obey and to walk in righteousness. Father, we know that we fall and have failed to obey. There is grace here today. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Exhort us to repentance and faith today. Turn us to good works. Father, make your church holy. For we already are. Save sinners for your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.